0: Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 441. This episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock, you're going to find the perfect video for your next creative project. You can choose from over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, 3D motion graphics, and a variety of digital formats. Most of them come in HD. That's high definition, Katie. Thanks. (laughs) That means... That means high def. (laughs) You know, sometimes I'll say high definition, sometimes Mm -hmm. I'll say HD, sometimes I'll say high def. Yeah. Sometimes I'll say high D. Sometimes I'll say definition, (laughs) just to mix it up a little bit. They add 10,000 video clips each week, so every time you visit, you're going to find something new. They're going to give you the assets that you need to bring your creative projects to the next level, and they're going to make it super easy. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account. You don't need a credit card; just start an account. Start using it, imagine what your next project's going to be like, save your video selections you find in your clip box, and then when you decide, use the offer code NERDIST11, it changes every time, it changes, so now it's NERDIST11, and new accounts will receive 30% off any package at Shutterstock.com for 30% off new accounts, use the offer code NERDIST11. I'm going to be doing some stand-up on the road in December uh, 6th, 7th, and 13th. I'll be in Minneapolis, Chicago, and Seattle. So go to Nerdist.com slash calendar for info on With me, Matt Meyer. (laughs) Oh, Matt. (laughs) Poor <laughs> Matt's not even here to defend him. I know. The worst part about it was like I was like, what would be if like I were to be the guy that tried to do a Matt impression to be <laughs> mean, but then did a really bad job at it. You know, Ten seconds before you did it, you made this face like you were trying to fart. <laughs> you just made this face where you're like, I mean, what's he doing? And then all of a sudden, I'm Matt Myra. <laughs> and it wasn't like it's not the, the joke that I did isn't to make fun of Matt Meyer. It was to make fun of a guy trying to just be mean for oh, no reason. Oh, Poor little rhubarb. <laughs> no, it's no that you're get, you're taking it the wrong way. It was about a guy. <laughs> well, he's gonna be taking it the wrong way. No, I'll tell him about it. I tell everything to his stupid face. <laughs> I know. I, I just I like the idea that a guy like you know that just is mean when the person's not around. I just, never mind. Well, I it love, it I love that, this, that this semi-hostful intro has been controversial because this episode is Oliver Stone. And I was very nervous about the Oliver Stone episode because um, he's a guy that is essentially a, a, a machine of names and dates and events. And uh, and I I have, you know, I have no, I'm not a historian, so I have no recourse to be like, no, that was not in fact the Warren Commission, you know like <laughs> and so I was very nervous because I would imagine that he probably expect this one was i feel like much more of an uh interviewee mm-hmm. normally these 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 podcasts are more like you know uh conversations and oh like you know it's like a phone conversation yeah. and um uh but uh but this I felt like was more interviewe because. He, you know, he had a lot to say. the The, uh, the Untold History of the United States is the documentary, this twelve part documentary series that he did. That he did. That's on uh, Showtime and it's on Amazon and, and iTunes. And then, the the JFK fifty year commemorative. Uh, you know, commemorating the 50 years since the assassination the, the ultimate Blu-ray edition of JFK is out too and it's actually it's really cool it, they sent me one I gave it to Matt Myra because he dro- he like I saw drool uh. like when he was like how oh, did you get one of those collector's editions I'm like here you go <laughs> uh, but it's got a lot of cool extra, extra stuff in it so um, this was a very interesting podcast for me because um, I tend to stay away from politics on the podcast because I sort of feel like A I'm you know I'm not a historian and I'm not a, uh, I'm not a hardcore political uh, comedian at all. I'm not even a softcore political comedian. But, you know, I like everything on the podcast to sort of feel uplifting, and I like the podcast to sort of. You know, make people feel unified, and I feel like <laughs> politics divides people. So this was an interesting podcast for me because I think you'll find that I'm not editorializing on anything. I'm essentially just asking questions and listening. So uh, this was uh, this was relatively relatively unique in that way. Whether you agree with everything the guy says or not, like he definitely he's a smart guy, oh, yeah, and he definitely, great. he definitely does. Did you watch the whole series? I've watched uh, three of the episodes. Yeah, of uh, yeah, Untold History. I've seen
1: them all. It's great. Yeah.
0: Starting to feel bad that oh, we misconstrue the joke I did earlier. I, I think we should just cut it out. <laughs> no, I'm going to leave it in. No, no, I played into it too. So there was a second shooter. There was.
1: Yay! Now entering nerdist.com.
0: Oliver Stone, thank you for being here on the podcast Nice to see you, Chris I wasn't sure I would ever say those words out loud Oliver Stone, thank you for being on the podcast
1: I don't know what I'm on, but I'll pay attention as I go It's like a
0: digital radio wonderland
1: That sounds good
0: (laughs) And I said before, I actually made notes And I never make notes for people
1: it indicates an organizing principle behind your society.
0: There is a little bit of an organizing principle. I haven't figured out what that is yet, or what my motivations are. All, but I just don't want to look like one. a. I don't want to look like a fucking idiot. You know what
1: you. the organizing principle of our society is? <laughs> what American is that? Society is war.
0: I guess that is that is a huge part of it. I, there is no war here. You and I are in peace. No, time. we
1: are we are different kinds of people. We exist as fringe people inside this state of yes. warfare.
0: Yes. Yeah. So we're we're those types of cogs. in that. what are you trying to say, Monica? Come in. You're holding up a note in the window. I can't see that no far D- away. No D.O.
1: G.C.A.F. Monica?
0: Oh, Kyle has a decaf. Oh. <laughs> uh, what, are you looking, what do you need?
1: Oh, no, no. no. no it's oh, okay. I you need a
0: kitty? Make sure Kyle is getting uh, Mr. Stone's decaf coffee.
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> All right. Sure, Monica. Thanks, and Mon. Then come
1: in here. With, please sit down. She should join the conversation.
0: She really should, actually, because she's actually uh, a Marine Reserve. She's a Marine
1: Reserve. Terrific. I
0: like her. And already. so, happy Veterans Day to you. Thank you very much. Thank it's you for your service you to our country. Thank you. Um, I th- I'm sure a lot of people know, but you received the Bronze Star and the Purple Heart um, Thank you. for your service in, in Vietnam. Yeah.
1: And uh, I have to say, uh, yeah, that uh, it's led me onto on to many fields of thought.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know if people know that um, you, you entered, you spent, what, a year at Yale? You went to Yale for a year and then you dropped out to go teach school in, in South
1: Vietnam. More or less, yes. I went. Uh, yes, that's true. I went to Yale for that first freshman year and uh, went to, uh, dropped out, uh, stayed in Vietnam for the uh, whole year practically and taught in school and, uh, and taught English, mathematics, history to uh, high school students in Cholon, and then joined the Merchant Marine. I became a wiper because you could join the Merchant Marine. It was a unionized activity, but you could join it abroad and, and replace a seaman that was missing in action somewhere out there. So I, I sailed around, and uh, and then I eventually came back to the States. It was an extraordinary voyage, northern Pacific in, Jan- in, no, northern Pacific in winter. It was amazing. Back to Oregon, Coos Bay, Oregon, from uh, Saigon.
0: So, uh, what, I mean, obviously— Almost died on that trip. Oh, you did? What
1: happened? Well, the ship was coming back light. All the ships used to go over to Vietnam were taking he- heavy, uh, heavy uh, goods to uh, Vietnam. Arms, uh, food supplies— uh, px television sets cars we were building up vegas in uh, in vietnam and they would all come back light a lot of them would come back with nothing so we had no ballast in the ship and we hit the storms of the uh, northern pacific which are extraordinary by the way something to be seen to be believed and i remember the 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 ship was an old liberty which was pitching like 44 degrees one night we went over 44 degrees a 45 degree tilt is about it you go over we almost capsized. and All the dishes were broken. I'll never forget the fear of that night and seeing the water coming through my porthole, practically.
0: And, but you, are you the type of person that is the next day, you're like, oh, we got
1: through that? Oh, no, 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 no. This For me, this was like a Lord Jim kind of experience, because all these guys in the Merchant Marine were rugged guys, veterans, but strange people. They all had strange lives and had been in Africa and the romance run in Latin America. They had wives in, in the States, many of them, but They never seemed to have lasting marriages or families. They were, oh, there was a call of the sea. You always, you you bitched about the sea, but but you'd always come back eventually. You always, they always had that law that you return to the sea. So many of them, you know, were lonely men in a sense, but always interesting to talk to, eccentric stories. Some of them told me they were CIA agents in Korea. They had amazing, and you know, half of it's true, probably half of it was true. (laughs) Does, does the sea I was at the Kennedy assassination for all I know <laughs> and you don't know if they're telling it. yeah yeah, sometimes they were that way, you know I'm saying with the sea, you never know if the tales are quite true. Does the sea forgive all?
0: like do people is it a good place for people to go to escape uh, what's going on land? Well on, it's a Lantern? place
1: where people with problems go to you know you realize that it's not a stable existence now they have container ships, of course, and they use mostly foreign crews, but uh, it was an amazing experience as a young man to go through that. I love the ocean. I love sailing. I, uh, and I was a wiper, which is the lowest job on the ship. I mean, I had to clean all the engine room, all the toilets. It was a rough job, too, because I had boiling oil fall on me through part of the, parts of the day. I had to blow, this, blow the tubes. I don't know anyone in your audience is going to – they're young people. They're not going to know what that means. Blowing the tubes is when you blow – you, you, you have to clean out the boiler every day.
0: Yeah, a lot a of my generation doesn't know how to do things with their hands. <laughs> if there is an apocalypse, a lot of us are completely fucked because we know how to work computers. Um, but uh, well, now it's computerized. Now, now it's all computerized. Yeah, but so. It, it, What did it feel like, like the political climate at the time? And then, where essentially so much of society was clashing with what was going on politically, did you feel particularly charged by the energy? And is that is that why you wanted to go teach in South Vietnam, or what was it that what what did you feel at the time?
1: All I knew is what I didn't like. I knew that I did not belong with the Yale crowd. Uh, I'd gone there from from boarding school, and I was in George Bush's class at Yale. He was a class of '68. And uh, I just knew I didn't belong. I didn't fit, right, fit in. So I had to find my way in the world. And I, I'd i read a lot of uh, Conrad and Hemingway and stuff like that. And I believed in, I guess, the male, the male thing about finding yourself, proving yourself. So I went out there to, to do that. And uh, I came back. And I went back to Yale for half a semester. I wrote a book. for, And I dropped out again. I was writing a book about my adventures, which became... A Child's Night Dream, which was published in 1995, eventually by uh, St. Martin's Press. It's good. It's, and in there, there's an interesting chapter on the merchant marine. But uh, basically, I went back to Yale and dropped out again and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then when that book was rejected in 19, early 67, I went back into the—I uh, volunteered for the draft. And I went back to Vietnam because I, didn't, I think I had to get one step further and go to the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, and see if I would come out alive on the other side. So I wanted to see war and i i got my fill of it i arrived in september 67 after four jacks in south carolina and i was in the infantry for 15 months
0: did you was your desire to see war as a soldier or to see yeah. war as an artist as well to see what it i guess i had an artistic was, temperament
1: yes i guess i had an artistic temperament and i wanted to see experience war i'd been influenced as i said by hemingway's for whom the bell tolls by uh, you know and i and you get these images and you they they become locked in your brain and you want to I guess every young man, to a certain degree, whether it's football or sports, wants to prove that he's a man, you know. I can't say what happened over there. It was—I uh, never—I came back from the war very dis- alienated, very uh, numbed out, drugged out, too. And uh, I, it took me a while to get back into society. It took me about a year to fit in, to start to get socialized, to talk to people in a normal way again. I just didn't have that— that capacity and uh, i ended up thank god at nyu film school under the gi bill and i was able to put my integrate my life back together through uh, making short films i mean it was stumbling at first i finally found my way and after film school i graduated to be a cab driver a messenger various jobs uh, all kinds of work in new york city uh, typing pools god almighty i was an assistant assistant on a porno film everything anything to work and I wrote scripts all the time. I kept writing scripts. And eventually I got lucky. And uh, 1979, I was a bit breakthrough year with Midnight Express. Mm-hmm. And, Al Parker? Uh, I went from uh, zero to, to the to the heights right away. I won the Academy Award. That's not very good for you because you're not used to it. And um, then I went down again and up again and down again. It's My career has been up and down ever since.
0: <laughs> Do you feel like that uh, anything you learned in the military or any of the time you spent overseas – did it teach you any values? Did it teach you any skill sets that you were able to sort of transform?
1: As use? a GI know, uh, you don't have any skill sets except uh, how, to, how to handle yourself in combat, which is a rare experience on the domestic front. But uh, I think you do have a sense of uh, an experience, a uh, discipline, a sense of a, a group. How, and you see the world perhaps more clearly because combat and infantry and the war itself, the military, is a huge machine, and it, weigh, it grinds up men, it grinds up money, and there's a tremendous amount of waste in war. I hope, I hope you realize how much there is, and things get done that are very cruel and unusual, and I, I think because of that experience, I'm able to see things in government life that are excessive and cruel and unusual and uh, unnecessary. And whenever we go back to wars, I think I'm able to see through the talk, because it's always the chicken hawks, the, the, the backdoor patriots, you know, the guys who are always out there on Memorial Day, you know, yelling about how great this country is, who are the worst. Uh, people who say this is the greatest country in, in the world, they, you know, they're not paying attention. And you see it everywhere in this country now. You see more and more false patriotism. It's disgusting to me. I think it's the last refuge of scoundrels, as they used to say.
0: So what is what is what do you believe true patriotism is?
1: Love of country. Love of country. That is to make your country a better place, to try to help it. To When you see things that are wrong, to criticize and to try to fix them. Not to pave them over with more money and more sugar like they used to do in the military.
0: Well, I think um, I watched... Uh Part of your series, the Untold History of the United States. I want. Can it go, go? see where
1: Kyle is. Yeah, this is a coffee. And then, and then you said this is a coffee face. clutch, and you don't have any yeah, coffee. <laughs> <you know>?
0: Kyle <laughs> has a beard. Grab what him by the beard and yank cheapo, him down
1: and punch him in the face. Cheapos, you are.
0: Yeah, no, seriously,
1: this is yeah. bullshit. Anyway, we're talking. Oh, here he is. Kyle's here. We haven't talked about my movies, oh, okay. goddamn. We're going to talk about your movies. We're going to talk about all. We're all wasting time about. Make. We're wasting time talking about the
0: man. Yeah, we're going to talk the movies.
1: Well. Are oh, you the other guy here? No,
0: Kyle's. Hey, Kyle's man. just taking notes. Kyle's taking Are notes. You another
1: uh, provocateur? I am. <laughs> Good. Kyle looks like a muppet.
0: Uh, he's got the. He's got the. <laughs> Can you get Monica
1: in here? I want. I want to talk oh, to you about military. Yeah, in. yeah. She could. Yeah.
0: Um, so, uh, make it fun. I watched. The, I watched the JFK episode of the uh, Untold History. Good. And what I found to be interesting was uh, seeing. Uh, your portrayal in the documentary of Khrushchev and uh, Kennedy as something that I hadn't really seen before, though admittedly I have not watched every documentary, but the idea that when they were faced with war... That they both changed and went. Wait a minute, maybe this is a bad idea, oh. Monica. Sorry, I think he, I think he wants you to come sit over here. Oh, and... oh my goodness! No, I just wanted to listen in. I... I didn't want to... <laughs> I told him you were in the Marines. Yeah, I, he got so, my respect. And so he wanted to. Uh, he wanted to. Really, you made the Korean Marines? You survived? No, she's in the uh, American Marines. No, sir. Oh, oh, she's okay. Korean, but she's in the American. Korean Marines
1: are much <laughs> tougher. They're, they're pretty intense. I
0: yeah. got to train with a couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, twice a year, Monica has to go overseas, and, and she disappears for like a month. Oh, really? she's still in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She still has to go. How many times do you go twice a year? Uh, twice a year, or I lump it all into one. Um, it's just, it's a, a particular reserve. Right. Mm-hmm. So I go to Korea. Well,
1: the Korean soldiers are always the roughest in Vietnam. They were hated by the uh, Vietnamese because they messed with them quite a bit. Really? <laughs> yeah, they were very cruel. But uh, we're going back to Khrushchev and Kennedy for a moment. Uh, It was an extraordinary moment, the uh, nuclear crisis of uh, October '62. The world was really at the edge because we didn't know uh, that the Russians had 40,000 tough troops there led by the commander of Salengra, the, the commander of that fought that great battle in World War II. They had a hundred nuclear we- battlefield weapons. that is what we didn't know. The Cubans had more men than we thought they did. They were 250,000 well-armed men and they had different styles of missiles than we even knew of. We knew part of what they had. So we would have gone in there thinking we were going to take 20,000 casualties. But McNamara, years later, when he found out what the Russians really had, said we would have taken 100,000 casualties. And it would have been like, with with the paranoia of those times, and the Joint Chiefs wanted a war with the Soviets because they knew that they could lick the Soviets. We had a... Almost a 10 to 1 uh, parity. We were much stronger than the Soviets at that time. They knew that we could take out the Soviet Union in 1960 and get away with it without significant retaliation. That was the basis of the movie that uh, Strangelove, uh, that Kubrick did. You know, they talk about what the retaliation factors would be. How many people do you lose? And the Joint Chiefs were saying, you know, if we wait, the Soviets are going to build up and they're going to achieve parity, which they did by the 1970s. Almost parity. Reagan then made it worse than it was. He talked about another big gap and he got into office in 1980 on that basis. But really there was a significant moment in our history when we were ready for war again. We'd waited since 1945, remember? We dropped two two atomic bombs on Japan. We didn't need to. We did it. It was a very barbaric act. We can go back and talk about that. But we had, we ready to use nukes. We built up with with Eisenhower to thirty thousand nuclear weapons. Thirty thousand nuclear weapons. We don't even have, we have about seven thousand now. We had thirty thousand. When you build that kind of machinery, you want to go. You know, it's like you build a bomb. You want to drop it. You want to see if it works. You know. So I'm saying there was a tremendous kind of feeling in the air by 1960 that we were going to have crises after crises with the Soviet Union, whether it was uh, Formosa, whether it was Suez, uh, or whether it was going to be Berlin again, because Berlin had been a significant crisis point. By 1962, this with Cuba 90 miles off our shores, we hit that point. We're ready to go. That's what Kennedy was facing. The hardliners wanted him to, to drop those weapons, wanted to invade and and fight. And we were on the edge on Trigger. trigger we were on DEFCON 2 for about... 20 days or whatever it was, DEFCON 2, which was not declared by Kennedy. It was declared by the Air Force general who did it on his own because under Eisenhower's policy, commanders had the right to go to to nuclear postures uh, on their own accord. So there was a guy named Thomas Power who was in charge of the Air Force. He went to DEFCON 2. And we almost had, a you know, near accidents, uh, there was a n- nuclear submarine, a Russian nuclear submarine. We went yes, into that one.
0: Yes, that, that I did not know about. That I did not know about. I wrote the guy's name down. Uh, Vasily Arkhipov?
1: Yeah, Arkhipov. Yeah, it's a great character, but uh, and it's a great story. It's a great story. He stopped this thing. The, the Russian commander was ready to fire because he had been depth charged, and he, he was outside the quarantine line, and he assumed that the war had broken out. And uh, he said we, we, they knew they were they were they were basically fucked. They were going to die. So he said, let's at least go out with some you know with, and fire off. And she so would have fired, and uh, then it would have been one thing after the other. Also, there was another near miss with a, a U two a got shot down right over uh, Cuba again, taking photographs. So the they went crazy on that one. We had on Okinawa where we had nuclear uh, bombers. We were ready to go with the H bomb against China because we were going to make it not only Russia we were going to make it China too. This thing was very serious. Kennedy was scared, and at the last second, I mean, he knew, and Khrushchev knew. They started to communicate, but they didn't have a red phone in those days. You know, they they, could, they couldn't talk to each other. So They had to go through go betweens. The go betweens are crucial. Kennedy knew that he could not control this situation much longer, that the hardliners would, 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 would win in the end, that there would be some outbreak that they couldn't stop. Khrushchev knew the same thing. Khrushchev withdrew the missiles, there was a, you know, they made a deal, and basically from that moment on, uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy began to thaw. And by 1963, a year later, they're signing the, uh, the limited test ban treaty, uh-huh. which is very interesting because that's the first nuclear test ban treaty we ever have in the nuclear age from 1945 on. It's a significant moment. Plus, there's a lot of other things that go on, you know, an opening to Cuba. Kennedy puts out an order not to withdraw uh, to withdraw the first thousand troops from from Vietnam. By the way, Kennedy's never put combat advisors into Vietnam, although the, 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 the uh, Pentagon wants combat advisors. They they want you know Vietnam is the next target. If they can't win in Cuba, God damn it, they're going to make a point. They both uh, the it's a, it's a very interesting story because it's about militarism and American militarism and how it continues on after Vietnam, which is a disaster for us. We go on right after Vietnam, and by the way, we don't stop. We start building up again right after Vietnam.
0: Now, was it, uh, it was kind of interesting that you know in the in the portrayal in documentary that these these two world leaders essentially, like you said, thawed. And they kind of realize, like, oh, the entire planet's going to go up in flames if we don't back off a little bit. And, and at the same time, risking looking weak as leaders for not going in and essentially obliterating each That's other.
1: That's always a big thing, isn't it? Khrushchev wrote that famous letter to Kennedy, good can come out of this evil. It's a beautiful letter. You should read it. It's in the chapter. And it's in the book, too. But uh, Khrushchev had been through uh, Stalingrad he'd been a political commissar there he'd seen the nature of war he saw how bad it was the Soviet Union was devastated by the war they both were mature men Kennedy had been in World War II he'd been a PT hero PT 109 type hero he saved a man drowning he saved men drowning he'd He was a he had a backbone. He wasn't like Obama. You know, he was a guy who could stand up to the military. He thought the generals were stupid. And after the Bay of Pigs, he fired Dulles, the head of the CIA. And he made comments about the Joint Chiefs that these people were really from the Stone Age. You know, he had people like Curtis LeMay uh, on his Air Force chief of staff, Arlie Burke, uh, Lemnitzer. These people were not the brightest people. They were geared for war. They were World War Two people who were arrogant. And they thought that they could take the Soviets, and they probably could have at that point, but it would have been a disaster for us. The world would have probably never – it wouldn't be the world we know today. How do you know when Maybe the right-wingers in America would like it this way, but (laughs) I don't think you and I would be sitting here quite so civilized. How do you know when you're making
0: a 10-part documentary series, this 12-part documentary series, The Untold History of the United States, how do you know – how do you – how do you get to as much of what you believe the truth to be as possible? How do you find out when you have, you know, decades of, of, of stories and hearsay? And how, how do you get to the nature of what you believe to be true?
1: That's what age is about. That's, that's the only thing I can recommend about <laughs> getting older is you get wiser. I've been through so much of the tyranny of now, the details of the news, and all the crises that come and go. I've been reading the newspapers since the 1950s. And over time, I think you get a little bit... More sagacious about things about every crisis is not the crisis it 's perceived. all the events that happen on a daily basis are, there's no, where is the pattern? what is going on underneath this don 't buy all the the news that you hear all the time, and i haven 't but you know in two thousand and eight, after two terms of George Bush, which was a nightmare for me as a veteran, because we were back in Iraq fighting a war that was unnecessary, and I think Afghanistan was overdone the way we did it. So uh, at that point, uh, P- I, Peter Kuznick is a historian at, at American University. I've known him for 20 years. We combined our forces as a dramatist and as a historian to write this book and make this series. And in those five years, I really did. Edu- I mean, it was like taking going back to school and getting a master's or a PhD in history. For me, I learned a lot. I mean, I I knew about various events like the Kennedy assassination and Nixon administration, what I'd seen and heard, uh, the Bush administration. But I'm saying putting it all together and looking for a pattern. Where did we become this country? Certainly it accelerates after World War II. We become a national security state. There's no question. And we, uh, we hyped the fear. We hyped the fear in the people. We, we built up our budgets. And by uh, the time the Soviet Union went away as a so-called threat in 1991, did we stop? Did we change? Did we go back? No. We kept going. By 1992, we were in Iraq. We sent 500,000 men to Saudi Arabia, which was a huge mistake because we trumped up this threat from Hussein as the new Hitler. He invaded Kuwait, and we made out of it like the beginning of World War II, literally, if you go back to those days in the PR. And we sent 500,000 men there, and that, of course, caused a whole dislocation, again, of our economy as well as of the Middle East. So one thing leads to another, and when Al-Qaeda attacks us in 2001, one of you, do you remember one of their reasons for attacking us? They stated it very clearly, was our putting troops in the Holy Land, Mecca, in Saudi Arabia. Those 500,000 troops bothered them no end, as well as our relationship with Israel. So, I mean, all these things are, they don't come out of nowhere. They're always like, there's a cause and effect. And that's what we were looking for in our history, looking for patterns, cause, effect, cause, effect. Why, does he th- why do people do these things?
0: Now, I've read, from what I've read uh, and what I've seen from stuff online, when people sort of challenge you to be the, uh, when they say, oh, you're the conspiracy guy, you're like, no, I'm not, I'm a storyteller, I'm a storyteller, I'm trying to get to the
1: truth and I'm trying to tell a story. Well there's a difference between my movies because my movies I have to dramatize. Of course, dramatize, but I I am very faithful to my research. I try to do the best I can, but you make a JFK movie about the assassination, you're got to combine a hell of a lot of material into 3 hours. Sure. And as well as combine characters. But when I'm doing a documentary like Untold History of the United States, I'm a documentarian in that regard. I, everything is fact-checked. We did three fact checks on that. Showtime, CBS Legal as well as our own fact check. We had to rewrite so many things because th- so many things you think are accurate or not you have to check and double-check so that untold history is documentary classic documentary we have opinions in them but you can see the difference between the opinion and the fact Mm -hmm. so uh, when we get to the Kennedy assassination we don't talk about it because it's just there's so much uh, I mean I think we can talk about that separately but we can't prove it right and everything has to be proven in a documentary so we say, here are the, we give you all the reasons of what's the difference between Kennedy and Eisenhower and what's the difference between Kennedy and Johnson. And you can, you can figure out the pieces yourself if you've got any brains. There's a huge difference. And when I grew up, they told us, these media, they told us that Johnson was essentially the continuation of Kennedy. That's not true. And that's what the point we have to make. And that's why we do it. these kind of things. So we stay out of the assassination. But by the time we get to Dallas, I think you can make up your own mind. Right, about what's about what's going on so, yeah. so so see the movie and then see the uh, <laughs> see chapter six because it's a great chapter it's one of my favorites
0: oh yeah chapter six that's yeah. the one I watched yeah.
1: that the blue the, the, uh, saw, saw the on blu-ray why do we say JFK to the brink because Alan uh, now John Foster Dulles the Secretary of State in the Eisenhower administration was a very powerful man he was almost the they called him the Jekyll and Hyde Eisenhower was always the grandfather type. And Dulles was this very, very hardcore Secretary of State. And he believed in rolling back the Soviet Union, rolling back, not just containment. And part of that policy was what he called brinksmanship, which is his policy, which is taking things to the brink. And why? Because we had the nuclear threat. We used to use a nuclear threat five or six times during the Eisenhower administration like a gun to the head. Make them give in. So it was very dangerous what he did, because it brought the, war, the world to the brink of destruction by 1962. Yeah. Literally, I, Dulles is responsible for this behavior that we see in the, uh, in the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff and the uh, CIA. And his brother, of course, Alan Dulles, ran the CIA, for had carte blanche for some 10 years, intervened in every third world country, every third world country. Literally, we, we became... Uh, an empire, an interventionist empire. We we led coup d'etats in Iran, do you remember, in 1954, three, and in Guatemala in 54. We we also un- tried to undermine the Indonesian regime in 1956-7. Amazing story. We denied it, but our CIA pilots were shot down there. They, they were imprisoned. It was embarrassing. We were involved in Angola against, not in Angola, in Congo, against Patrice Lumumba, who was assassinated by the Belgians, but we tried to poison them first. I mean, we were no good. And in Vietnam, we backed the French. We, we paid for 90, 85% of their war. And we, and we, we uh, had a lot to do with uh, postponing the elections of 1955, which would have maybe have solved the issue in Vietnam. We did not want Ho Chi Minh to win. We were bad guys all over the world. Now, the Russians did bad things, too, in Hungary and various countries, in Czechoslovakia. But I'm saying during the 50s, if you look at the scorecard and keep track of what's, who's doing what, we come out as the heavies. Do you prefer a uh, documentarian or a dramatist? I would never do a documentary again. That took me five years, and, <laughs> and uh, it's, hard to make, you know, it's hard to make a living doing it. It's, it was a work of love, and uh, it made me better. It refreshed me. It gives me more strength. Uh, but I, I really am a, a storyteller. I'd like to go back and do a drama.
0: Yeah. So when you're so when you sit down and you know, when you tackle something like uh, JFK or or uh, or Nixon or W or Kovic, like what is it that you what is it that you want the takeaway to be? Do you want people to kind of make up their own minds or I do you? I don't think
1: about that. That's uh, that's what I when I go on a show they say, well, what's your message? You know, okay, I don't send you hold it up on a piece of cardboard. No, I, I'm into it because of the process. I think that when I do a Ron Kovic story, I I walk in his shoes uh, as I walked in the shoes of Nixon, which was an amazing experience because I didn't admire Nixon. I disliked him. But a uh, by, by, by dramatist doesn't take sides. You walk in the shoes of the person. When I would play, why would I make a movie about W, B, Bush, who I think was a moron. I think he was a, a dumb man with a limited vision. I know you just probably disagree, his Korea there. But uh, <laughs> I mean, why would I make a movie about somebody I don't admire? because i try trying to understand. You understand? I put myself in his shoes, and many people faulted me for making him too sympathetic. If you remember, Josh Brolin was criti- was somewhat criticized for being not being hard enough on Bush. So you can't win, but I, th- that's what a dramatist does. You you live the story you're telling. So sometimes you do a, a person like a Nixon or a Bush, and sometimes you do a, a Kovic or a Lady Hayslip, who was a, a female, Vietnamese female uh, peasant who managed in heaven and earth to live on both sides of the war. I learned. I learned. I learned something about life, a truth. My crime movies, uh, Natural Born Killers, U-Turn, and Savages, I I lumped them as one, although they were at different times in my life, but in a in a certain way, that's my anarchic side. There's something I learned about myself uh, by acting that out. If I hadn't done those three movies, I don't think I would be the same person.
0: Do you think *Natural Born Killers* was prophetic in the sense that it it almost sort of predicted like social media and the and the the um uh and the idea of um elevating this insane behavior for people to consume
1: like as I remember that the natural born each film has its own origin and and. You, I mean I kept a diary of all these years so I know I'd have to go back and read it but as I remember the National Born Killers came out of a sense of disgust in 1990s early 90s after the JFK thing I'd been so trashed by so much press and so much silliness and tabloid and I felt this this madness coming on American society of television. With uh, the O.J. Simpson trial is a case in point. I mean, it's a murder. It's certainly sensational, but it was so much was made out of it. It distracted society for for uh, people were not paying attention to more important things, and they became enamored of this trial, and it became the news, and it drove like a probably ten billion dollars cycle through television of advertising. You have to realize. How much people invest in the, in the capitalist system believes in sensationalism and violence as, as a means to an end, to get money, to create interest, to spark something. So we made, they made a fortune off O.J. Simpson as they made off every murder trial at that point. There was a bunch of murder trials. You don't even know a woman cut off her husband's penis. There was all, oh, yeah. they made the big things case. out of everything. And that was front page news, you know. An ice skater pushed another ice skater. You know, it gets silly. And our society got very silly in the 90s. And that's what Natural Born Killers was about. About two freaked out teenagers who have a horrible existence. Their father is abusive, their mother's very passive, and they, 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 they fall in love. They go on a rampage because all they know is violence. But we see a society around them that is even sicker than they are. We see a prison warden, we see a cop, we see a media that's insane. So it was a satire about our society, and it was misunderstood.
0: Do you feel like a lot of your characters are these sort of bigger-than-life characters that are in these this this world around them that's utterly insane? I mean, even going back to like movies that you wrote, like Scarface or, or Conan. Like, is, is, do you, do you feel like that there? Are, do you see a, a similar pattern in all of these characters and these well, kinds actually, of Scarface?
1: I remember uh, I was my political instincts were not as developed back then because I was still figuring out my way. But uh, I remember Scarface was very much. The idea, although he was a scumbag, he was a gangster, and he was based on the old film, was that he was also an American immigrant who dreamed a big dream, which is the American dream, which is what? Money, power, mm-hmm. and, and, and sex. Those were the three things in his coordinates. And although he, had, he was awful to people, he never killed anybody without reason in the movie. We show that kind of clearly, that everyone he kills is basically a gangster. And then at, later in the movie, when he becomes insane with paranoia, no matter how disfigured he becomes with cocaine usage, he's unable to kill the, the child and the, and the wife of the diplomat he's assigned to kill by the cartel in the South, South America. In other words, he has some resident integrity. Uh, Feeling, And also when when his sister, of course, you know, the whole thing with his sister and his friend is also the part of that resident integrity that he has.
0: Well, then is that then do you as a dramatist? Is that part of your is that part of your goal? Yeah,
1: no matter how bad you are, no matter how awful the situation of you, there is something human left in in Tony Montana uh, in my mind. Uh, Now, I didn't direct the movie, but that's the way I wrote it. Conan the Barbarian was changed quite, is altered quite a bit. It did, the script is fascinating, uh, and would have cost a lot more money. And I think it would have ended up as a 12 twelve-part series. It would have made the producers a lot more money, but they, they went the other way. They short-circuited. They, it ended in two series, in two films. Right.
0: So when you said that, uh, because I I watched an interview online that you did with your son, actually, uh, and you were talking about how uh, JFK, you said after JFK, there was you essentially said there was a shit storm. And then, you know, people said you were crazy or people gave you shit. And so what, what exactly happened? And then when did it happen in that process?
1: Well, No, I, I, JFK was. I mean, I, I also was got a lot of praise. It got eight Oscar nominations. Well, yeah, of course. And it won two for for editing and for cinematography. You know, the film was was significant, and it led to the uh, JFK Act, which was passed, which allowed for an expansion on the records of the records and an investigation of more records. Up until 1998, they did a pretty interesting job, and it revealed a lot of new stuff. Of course, some records are still being held, and we found out out too. But the point was that it did have it did lead to some uh, productive results, and it woke people up again to what they felt outrage about, that this was something crooked about this murder. I still maintain that there is, very much so, very crooked murder. But we can get into that in another question. But my life changed with that movie because I was very hot off of uh, Born on the Fourth of July and Platoon and Wall Street and Doors. And in a sense, it crossed a line because... Uh, filmmakers didn't go into these arenas with such detail. We had done a lot of research. We had experts with us, uh, forensic experts, photography, uh, f- photography experts, ballistics experts. I mean we had good people working on the film who'd been involved in the JFK uh, critical community for years. It wasn't like we went into this blind, but I didn't know that there was so much that we'd hit such a nerve until the second week of shooting. When uh, uh, the Washington Post sent a reporter down at Daily Plaza, we were shooting the assassination and there was a guy there and we didn't know who he was. And next thing we know, we pop up in the Sunday pages of the Washington Post, second week, third week of shooting, vi- vivisecting us. With off an old script that he a draft I think we were on our eighth or ninth draft, and he was working off the second draft. So he was pointing up all the things that were, were wrong in the script before the movie had been seen. I think that was really unfair. We called the post, and we got into a war with them, and it was a war all the way through. Uh, it was a war for getting our point of view across, on paper, not just on film. It's a war you end up losing against the mainstream media. Newsweek had a cover before we came out saying, "Don't believe this film." Literally, oh, wow. You know, that kind of war. So it was very frustrating. And uh, obviously, I went on television for almost six months after the film was released to defend my honor and defend the reputation of the film. Like, I, my attitude is like I'm not just a filmmaker who's making just another movie. No, this is, this is, I believe this. I believe this happened. And I believe our country was robbed. And I think Kennedy was killed by more than one gunman.
0: And so you feel like... At the time, it's such unfortunate that there wasn't that you didn't have outlets like the social media outlets today, where you could reach out to people directly and go, "Hey, here's what I." I mean, you basically were, if you're saying that the press was against you, you were having I didn't to say use, all the press,
1: but some of the press, but Most you were, you, of the were, mainstream you, were press, yes.
0: you were still having to use the mainstream press to get your your yeah. opinion out, but it wasn't getting the out. Film in the film spoke for
1: itself. That's all I can say. The film spoke for itself, and many reviewers were kind to it. Roger Ebert, uh, who was a big reviewer, said that. There, I don't know all the facts of the case, but I know there's something right about it. He catches the mood. He catches the atmosphere. There's something that's inherently in, in, right about this movie, which is as good a compliment as you can get. But, but you know, too many of the critics thought that they were experts on the, on the JFK uh, issue. They should not have – I don't think they should have gone there because I think, for example, the New York Times uh, has always been – very critical, very critical of any book or commentary or document. They won't even run a review generally of a, of, a, of a book that's critical of the Warren Commission. It's a very strange story. It goes on for years. So does the Washington Post. But meanwhile, the New York Times gave us a lousy review, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so, but people went. It was like platoon. They couldn't be stopped. They were curious because they, there was heat. There was a heat about the film, okay? So the film spoke for itself, and I still think it does. And I'm very proud of the film. There's nothing wrong in the film. It's got a solid case. The shooting, the evidence, the, the window, the, uh, the Dealey Plaza sequences. The Garrison case, although he had a weak case, we showed that it was a weak case on film. He admitted it on film. So it wasn't like we were building up Garrison to be something he was not. He, had a, he was a brave man because he brought into the light of day the operations of a covert branch of the U.S. government. That's what he was suggesting. And even to this day, you know as well as I do, even with all your media, the Julian Assange's and the Bradley Manning's and the, uh, and the Snowden's, they're still out of luck in our society. They're still the, um, the antiheroes, right? I mean, they haven't improved in our, in our society. These people are – Snowden is stuck in, uh, in another country. He's exiled. These people can't do what what Garrison did. Garrison brought the trial, was vilified, marginalized, ridiculed. He went through hell. I knew the man. But uh, Snowden is going through the same thing. But maybe now, because you see Snowden, maybe your generation can understand what Garrison went through. It's very hard to prove these things when the government does them. Snowden had the documentation, thank God. But without the documentation, he would have been treated, he would probably have been arrested, and he ran away before he could be arrested.
0: Right. So when you look back and watch JFK, which, by the way, uh, they're releasing in theaters again because it's the 50th anniversary. Um, And I know that uh, I think I have the dates here, but I think on the 17th and the 20th. uh, It's uh, a
1: Sunday showing in in various cities here in in L.A. It's one week uh, until next Friday. And it's from this week. It's this week. I'm going to do a Tuesday Q&A at the uh, Cinerama Dome. Okay, and uh, in New York, it's in, in, in one theater, in Washington, in Georgetown, one theater, and then it hits on Sundays, two different Sundays, I believe. Eleven, you said seventeenth and twenty-fourth. Yeah, I think
0: the seventeenth and the twentieth. I believe are the there'll days. be in a,
1: a lot of different theaters all around the country, but only on a one-show, two-show basis.
0: It is when you, when you look back at the movie, it is like a museum of every actor
1: at the yeah. time. Oh, we're bringing out a, a Blu-ray, a new edition, fiftieth anniversary edition, with chapter six in it. With a, with a lot of uh, new documentaries and uh, PT-109, the film about Kennedy, uh, made by Cliff Robertson in 1950s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that'll come out. It's coming out in uh, November. Uh,
0: it's coming out tomorrow. So by the time this posts, it'll be out. Yeah, it'll already be yeah, out. coming out tomorrow. Um, what have we learned in the last 50 years? Have we learned anything? Are we closer? Are there things that you thought when you made JFK that, you've, that you learned new information or changed
1: your mind about? We know now, for example, the 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 JFK Act uh, led to the the Assassination Records Review Board, and they took four million four million pages of documents, four million pages of documents to go through. So there's a lot of detailed stuff that. One thing we know is that the CIA, for example, was very was watching was very intimate with Oswald from '59 to '63. In the Warren Commission, it said the CIA had a routine and sporadic involvement with. With Oswald, but we now know that there's more there, and we know more about the people who were involved with him. Uh, those files, by the way, were not released in the 90s, as, as was requested by the Assassination Records Review Board. They were not released. So there's about 1,100 documents. Uh, Jefferson Morley who used to work for the Post and has now gone rogue, has gone uh, uh, with his own blog, JFK Axe. He has a JFKAxe.org. Uh, it's a very good organization on paper. On, it's a website, rather. Morley has, uh, uh, through the National Archives, has found some of the individuals who he would like to know more about and has asked for it, but he's not going to get it from the CIA. These would involve James Angleton, who was a counter, counter chief of counterintelligence so the CIA. James Angleton, very famous character. Richard Helms was deputy director. He attacked our film. Uh, uh, George, uh, G- George Giannides, the Miami B- Bureau Chief, David Phillips, the Mexico City Bureau Chief, very interesting figure comes up again and again uh, E. Howard Hunt on a lower level and uh, David Morales, both of whom, late in their lives seemed to implicate themselves uh, in the assassination uh, Hunt told his son he was there that day he was involved, I mean there's been a lot of those kind of things, we need to get the files on those people because they're all around the case William Harvey's another one. Uh, Morley's done a good job, but everyone's working on this from different angles. Of course, the big thing of, is the uh, is the uh, the autopsy. That was the biggest the biggest medical fraud of all. That, the autopsy, the way it worked out. The, the 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 case in our film is pretty much the case. we still it holds up. Kennedy was shot from two sides. It was because you have a shot to the neck from the front, and you have a kill shot frame 313 of the Zapruder film. Takes him at the right right temple, blows out the back of his skull. Witnesses all over the place at Parkland and at, at Bethesda see the skull, the cerebellum, comes out. There's hardly any brain left. In the autopsy photos, in the autopsy that's presented, he still has a brain that weighs as much as when he, was, as when he got shot. So it doesn't make any sense what happened. The body disappeared for a while. There was a the photographer who was there that day, who shot the photos, does not recognize the photos that were presented by the autopsy. So we have this kind of weird stuff that happens because the body disappeared for a while. Is there- went to Washington. The point that you have to keep in mind is back into the left, back into the left. When you're in infantry, you take a shot at somebody. You saw the police chief in Vietnam who shot the guy. Yeah. The guy falls a certain way. You shoot somebody in the head, he goes back into the left. And we showed that in the film. It's, there's a Pruder film that was done that day. Now, you can argue all you want, that you can go to the front, this, that, and you can come up with all the fancy arguments, but a, an infantry soldier will tell you the truth. As you shoot a man, he goes the way of the shot. That's what Kennedy did. He was shot from the front. The first shot in the throat, and the, the fourth or the fifth shot up here. There's a shot in the back that hits him, and a separate shot that hits Connolly. That indicates at least four bullets, not three. Connolly was not hit at the same time as Kennedy from the back. You don't see a reaction in the film from Connolly at the same time as Kennedy. And there's also a shot at the, a missing shot that goes to James Teague, who was hit at the underpass. He had a graze on his cheek. So there's at least five shots, probably six, because some people believe that Connolly was shot twice. He had, there was the magic bullet that the Warren Commission invented, the, war, the magic bullet, the single bullet theory by Arlen Specter. He was an evil fucker who was a lawyer. At the, he was a lawyer who worked for the uh, Warren Commission, and he guided the witnesses. He guided the witnesses. He guided the autopsy chief. He, awful man. But anyway, he came up with a bullet that goes through two hard bones and creates seven wounds in Kennedy and Connolly. He calls that the, the – uh, and then it comes out pristine. They call it the pristine bullet. It's a joke. But that becomes, and they actually went with that. And that's the the weakest thing in the whole Warren Commission is the pristine bullet, the single bullet theory. But on top of that, you have this uh, the Zapruder film that shows you the front, the, the the shot from the front that hits him. So you have two big things staring at you. That's evidence.
0: Is there any part of you that's sort of like
1: <laughs> just? So a little... Even if you, I don't believe Oswald did it, no, because I've, there's another story on Oswald. But the the, the thing is that. Even if it was Oswald on the sixth floor window, shooting it with a Mannlicher Carcano, which is the worst weapon in World War II, she could probably tell you that it's a piece of shit weapon. <laughs> and it's a bolt action. It's a bolt action you have to make. Plus, you miss your first shot, and then you hit your other. T- your, 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 your Kennedy's receding from you in a, in a car through a tree. And why don't you take the shot when he's coming towards you? I don't know, but assume that you let him make the curve and you go down away from you. Then you miss the first shot, then you hit him with the last two, all in, within six seconds. It's crazy. That sh- that the weapon was not even used, and they never made the print contact. He never had a paraffin test. There's no chain of evidence on the weapon itself. Plus, they found other rifles that day, the Mauser. They found other types of shells. It was a botched, botched case. It wasn't that well done.
0: Are you tired of uh,
1: sort of being the go-to guy with this no, stuff? No, I'm not you... the go-to guy. Just, I'm going to put if you want. If you're serious, I'll get you three or four guys. who are going to sit here and we'll take you through this step by step. Well, I just mean like professionals.
0: As, a, I'm as an amateur, as a writer director, are you? Is there any party that's like I just want to write about
1: fictional people? Yeah, again. yeah, yeah, yeah. I do, but this pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> you got to understand, I'm, they <laughs> they treat us like we're stupid. <laughs> They, the Warren Commission, the arrogance of government power, and they didn't make such a – they weren't that smart. I think they're shocked uh, – you know, by the way, life goes on, technology goes on. I think you know, we could uh, – anyway, let's go, on, let's go on.
0: No, 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 it's good. I mean, let's listen, this is something that you're passionate about, and it's, and, and, and it's fascinating. You know, unfortunately, I don't have enough – Information, like I'm hearing everything you're saying, and I'm going, uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Like, I don't know. Just
1: remember, people will argue with you and all this. He was shot from two sides. Remember, that's the most important thing. He was shot from two sides. He was not shot from one side, he was shot from the back and the front. That means there has to be another gunman. That gunman, if you stand in Dilley Plaza, has to be a defense. That's the kill shot. You see him coming towards you. It's a beautiful shot. You can easily get him, a good marksman can. Oswald was not a good marksman, but that's just remember: shot from two sides and back into and the left, back into the left. Those are your two basic things, and you can't. And we'll go to court on that. We'll fight in a trial on that. We can get our experts from both sides, and I think you'll believe our side when we're when we're done.
0: Well, you also. Uh, uh- you also seem to have a sense of humor about... I mean, I, I remember seeing you in Dave, where this is like the shot... Like There's yeah. footage you in the background, and yeah. you can see that he's clearly not the same guy. I feel like uh, the guy from Dave sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't he the only guy who was right in the end? Of he this? was right, yeah, he was right. But then you also... You also, did, did, you did a series in the early 90s, right? What Was it um, yes. Uh, P- Palms? Yes, uh, Palms. Re- yes. Where, uh, where they're that's interviewing right. you in the that's background, right. and you're like, you're and very, it's, it's like it's like years in the future, and are like, so does it, is it satisfying I, to know that you were right about everything?
1: <laughs> I, I had gray hair. I'm right about these uh, 12 chapters, too. I hope you get our history, because <laughs> that's the best history of America, you, modern America, you're going to find in one place. And it's not our work as historians. We build on the shoulders of other people. Cold War revisionists have provided this history. I'm not an original Researcher, I'm only a dramatist working with a historian who's working on the shoulders of like six or seven major historians from the 1950s and 60s who've done this questioning of our history.
0: Yeah. So, as a dramatist, where is the line between uh, represent, re- representing something as as fact, but then also uh, you know having to put an artistic spin on it? Or, well, that's, or a, that's
1: in the film, not in the documentary. Not in the documentary. No, in the film. No, I would always. Uh, you, you say based on a life or. Uh, based on or uh, this is a representation uh, you're taking many different witnesses and you're making maybe one or two witnesses for dramatic length Uh, you're having uh, 17 incidents happen to a person or 25 incidents and you make them into five you you have to find a way to make it a story that transcends you know well every fucking movie now it's just like but no I don't sh- I don't lie if I know something is wrong I won't do it I won't put it in the movie I no won't no definitely it. not lying but some certainly. filmmakers will and they'll say it's a movie well I mean Osama bin Laden story whatever this bin, Laden, bin zero whatever it was zero bin 30 uh, you know <laughs> zero dark 30 <laughs> they would have you believe that the torture led to the torture in some way led to the uh, assass- execution of a the revenge we took on Bin Laden, correct? I don't believe that. I don't. Th- I don't think he should have had that in. I think torture it, it demeans demeans us as a country. And I don't think we used it because I think what we do with terrorists is we find them. We find them through informants for the most part, intelligence, and we ad hoc specific activity. Probably Bin Laden would have been found because somebody gave him up because there was a lot of money involved. There was a lot of pressure that way. If it, generally the gangsters and the terrorists are revealed by other people who work with them. That's my, it doesn't come from putting about be- eavesdropping the whole world and trying to find a pin in, the, in a haystack. It doesn't work that way. Do you feel like that because so you're we you? We allow for torture, we allow for uh, international eavesdropping, global, this global architecture, we say we need that to fight terrorists. We're really wrong. We're morally wrong. So do you feel like, uh, are you the, do, do people just
0: contact you all the time and go, hey, Oliver Stone, I have some weird information about something? Yes, all the time.
1: <laughs> As a result, I know more than you think. <laughs> I get a lot of stuff, but some of it is, you know, the thing is, I can't ignore things. I mean, I try to pay attention. It's, it's very hard when you get a lot of stuff, but, I always try to have it covered or re- listened to. I mean, try to be reasonable, because there is stuff out there in the world that is pretty shocking.
0: So do you feel like someone like Snowden is more patriotic in some cases? I or, do.
1: I think he did it out or of less. conscience. No, I, I believe he's a hero. I've said so politically, uh, publicly. And what was the response? I think there's a, many people agree with me. I did an NSA uh, PSA, anti-NSA PSA with, for the ACLU and for the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, I think it's called. Uh, no, uh, we've been on TV. We've stated our views. Uh, I, totally, I totally agree with Glenn Greenwald uh, in his view of government and the wrongness of these measures. As I said, you know, putting out a omniscient 1984 all-seeing state is not a solution. It's a terrifying solution. It scares everybody a suspect. You, too. You, too. We're all suspect. Nobody is innocent in this world now because, with this mentality. Bush said it when he—you remember Bush? I don't know if you're young enough or—
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, you mean the first Bush.
1: The, the second Bush.
0: The, the W Bush, yeah.
1: Do you remember him when he said, you're either with us or against us? That was terrifying. All of a sudden, he took 2,000 villains, uh, terrorists, and he made them into 60 different countries. And he said, you know, you're all—if you're not with us, you're against us. That scares me when somebody says that because I don't know who's— Really, with the power the United States have technologically to destroy people, drones, space weaponry, anything that they would deem a terrorist in the future. I mean, you imagine you have a sense of history, right? You know, the people like who formed totalitarian states like Hitler or Franco or Mussolini would declare terrorists people inside their state. Anybody who was opposing to their authoritarianism would be called a terrorist. That's a common it's a common uh, method of operation, MO. So what would you do? So you maybe you because of your underground railroad connections, because you're against the Vietnam or Afghani war, or because you're for uh, for you're you're for Snowden. All of a sudden, you're on their you're on their web. Maybe they're going to declare you a terrorist.
0: Did you ever feel like you were in danger
1: from them? Now, yeah or at any point well I've thought about it and so does everybody everybody who's got any sense would think about using their uh, their iPhone or uh, anything you use I mean you're, you're being tracked all the time if, you, if they want retroactively I'm not saying they're watching me now but if they wanted to go back and check my file and well, let's say another Bush comes into office or we have another terrorist incident where everyone goes crazy again who knows
0: what would you be your solution? What would be your solution? What would be the first thing you could do if if someone said, "Hey, Oliver Stone, take over the government"? What do you do?
1: I would declare Monday a holiday. Okay, that's a good idea. Yeah, I think that you be get popular? a three day weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you I'd get a nice three day weekend. Every Monday a holiday, and yep. I say we're going to have a four day work week, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> okay, all right, okay, that. okay, I'm <laughs> on board. For then that. I would repeal the Patriot Act, and I'd repeal, and I and I'd fire the heads of the NSA. Uh, and the cia and i would start over i would start over and i would get into the pentagon that'd be dangerous (laughs) because that's a separate government inside our country wow well i don't i mean are we over no we got to get going to travis you have to go to Travis smiley Um, anyway uh it's very sweet of you to have me oh it was a great this is a really this is a really great
0: pleasure to meet you this is really fascinating chat and 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 it is i mean it's you know, your your detail and your knowledge is uh, is definitely intimidating. I'm, most of it, I'm just listening.
1: I thought you were smart. Yeah! <laughs> I thought you read all this
0: stuff. You should watch all 12 chapters. I definitely yeah. will watch all 12. Th- I, I literally just got If you got, do, it, so I'll I'm come back. Yeah, I will. Because then a, we I'll can have, have 12 more 12 of a discussion.
1: And I'd like Monica to be part of the Korean discussion.
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you have anything to say, Mon? No.
1: She gets embarrassed. I was um, in Korea this summer uh, protesting the island. Uh, they're building another naval base, South Koreans on Jeju Island, which is a beautiful island, they're ruining it. Oh, wow. It's huge. It's, a, it's only 300 miles from Shanghai, it's the anti-China pivot that we're doing. And so you went there to protest? Yeah. Yeah. And the Koreans, I went to Hiroshima Nagasaki, Okinawa, Okinawa is another base full of bases and it's also got a strange history, World War Two, and uh, Korea has been, a, it's a really one of our most important allies, I, armed to the teeth, Korea and Japan are armed to the teeth by us. And they're uh, ready for war. Do you have any opportunities to just have fun and relax? Uh, <laughs> I mean, with- I love Korea. I love Japan. I love those places. Yeah, I do. I relax. Okay, good. I have fun. I have fun. I do. What do you? Want? I look like I don't have fun. <laughs> No, it's just because you know, because because of the
0: documentary, because the 50th edition, yeah, because it's the 50th too much work anniversary. Right it just it's like yeah.
1: it's so serious and so serious and like JFK. And it's And I'm cons- writing something new, so you know, yeah. I'm writing a movie by the way, not a not a documentary.
0: Good Fiction, fictional movie or, or based dramatic,
1: on a dramatic based on. Sorry, based
0: on a story. That's all right. That's all right. Well, it's good to see it. All right, thanks. Guys. And he's. Uh, at The Oliver Stone on Twitter and uh, the 50th uh, edition of, uh, I mean, the 50th and anniversary. Facebook too.
1: And Facebook the as Oliver well. The Oliver Stone Experience, right? Uh,
0: the Oliver Stone Experience, is that right? Um, yeah, so the so the new edition, the 50th anniversary JFK edition is out, which is a gorgeous box set. And then also uh, the Untold History of the, the United States uh, Showtime. Do you, do you have a him me here? Yeah, we do. We do. Enjoy burrito.
1: Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This
0: episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code NERDIST11. Nerdist and the number 11. Once
1: upon a beat.